this buying opportunity, from my point of view, happens once every decade when we come to the end of the credit cycle, which is what we're seeing right now. Welcome to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. In these timely episodes, we provide the latest investment news and expert commentary on the markets, the economy, and investing. Brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management. Hello, and thanks for joining us today. With oil markets coming under pressure in recent days, Mark Ray speaks with Chris Heeks and Alfred Lee about the impact on equity and fixed income strategies. Drawing on new data, insights, and perspectives, the two portfolio managers deliver valuable trade ideas to take back to your client conversations. Before we hear from them, we'd like to remind you that when buying and selling ETFs, it's best to avoid trading near the open and close of the market, especially during periods of heightened volatility. We also recommend using limit orders and revisiting those orders regularly during the day, given that markets may continue to shift dramatically in these turbulent times. Hello, and welcome to the BMO GAM Canada Weekly Insight ETF Call. I'm your host, Mark Rays. I'm the head of product for BMO GAM Canada, covering mutual funds and ETFs. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for your, your time and listening in, and hopefully thank you for your questions. Today, we are joined by Chris Heeks, Portfolio Manager on our ETF desk, focusing on equities and derivative-based solutions and Alfred Lee, who works on fixed income, preferred shares, and as well as our ETF strategist. So thank you both for joining the call today. Another another interesting week in the markets, uh, where certainly oil has been the number one topic of conversation. Let's start with an update on oil, where there's a lot of buzz around the expired May contract, uh, the futures contract, going negative uh, for the first time. Certainly a a hard concept for us all to get our minds around, really implying uh, a massive imbalance between supply and demand, where demand has disappeared and supply is slower to, to shut down or slow down, and therefore storage capacity is certainly at its max. So can we get your views on energy? What's going on in the marketplace here? And maybe tie it into looking forward to, you know, if we gradually return to work, how does this start to, to play out? Keeping in mind, of course, the risk, if we move too fast, do we get another wave of infection? Secondly, that consumers are going to be a little scarred at coming out of this and will be more reluctant to go back to their, their old spending habits. So thanks. I'll turn that question to Chris. Thanks, Mark. Good morning, everyone. So, you know, I think you, you put it pretty clearly there. You know, what we saw was um, on April 20th, on Monday, that, that May contract, it was the last day that it could be traded before holders would have to actually take delivery of oil. So what happened is given, you know, demand's down quite a bit, you know, people aren't driving their cars, manufacturing and industrial production has obviously been down in some areas that there is so much supply, there was nowhere literally to store the oil. And there was a bit of a rush for the door to get out and sell those contracts before taking delivery because Simply, there was very, it was very, very hard to find storage capacity to take delivery of that oil. So it was really a structural problem with that near-month contract. And if you look at further-month contracts, I mean, obviously, oil has been under kind of severe pressure with 
the overall market. But, you know, the further contracts going into the fall with Q4 and Q1 and next year, you know, they're still trading now kind of high 20, low $30 range. Um, so it really was, you know, a structural issue with this May contract. Um, you know, one thing I thought was interesting was that EOR oil and gas ETF was only down 1% that day. So it shows you that this kind of um, market volatility didn't really impact the, the producers. And we'll, we'll probably talk more about them going forward. You know, I think in terms of um, how coronavirus and the, the situation we're in is going to impact everything. I mean, obviously, it's laying them on demand, um, as we mentioned. Um, governments are going to you know, they're starting to talk about uh, loosening measures. And I think it's really good to see the curve flatten in some places globally overall. But we do hear Trudeau still warning about we can't go too quickly to open up. So, you know, what we're hearing more and more is it's going to be a bit, you know, it's going to be a staged recovery to that new normal. And uh, and so that demand is probably in terms of the oil side, it's going to it's going to come back eventually, but it's, it's going to take it's going to take a few months at least. So, you know, one thing we're seeing in the market is what happened with that May contract. It's already started happening with the June contract. And that's that's the contract that's that's listed or you will see on the news headlines, you know, it's at thirteen dollars right now. You know, it's it's lost about half its value in the last few days. You know, as people are anticipating a similar supply shock at the end of the next month, it's already being sold down. So that's what's happening. I you know, I do think one more point just on the general properties of oil, and I thought it's interesting is the oil does have a mean reversion property. So what I mean by that is when the price of oil is low, it'll it'll tend to get a tailwind behind it to move it back up. And when the price of oil is very high, you know, you'll tend to get uh, resistance to move that price back down. You know, why does that happen? When oil prices are low, companies cost where oil's an input, companies' costs can be reduced. So there's an incentive to bring production on stream whereby, you know, some of your costs are lower can be a good thing for businesses. And I think that's what Warren Buffett came out and said that, you know, oil at zero is kind of a good thing. Now he thinks kind of tongue in cheek because obviously it impacts some companies in a good way and, and others in, in, in negative ways, obviously like energy companies themselves. Uh, for his businesses where oil is predominantly a cost, it can be a good thing. So uh, that mean reversion property of oil, we should see that over time whereby, you know, oil that can be bought relatively cheaply right now uh, could be a good thing going forward. All right. Thank you for that, Chris. That's a, that's a great intro into what's really been going on this week. Let's let's dive a little deeper now into to ETFs because, of course, investors can get at oil one of two ways. One is to use you know, an ETF like USO that, that uses futures contracts and therefore is accessing the commodity. But the, the other way, and which we do with ZEO, uh, is to invest in the in the energy producers. Now you've already hinted that there was much less of an impact to the producers. I would assume that as you know, a direct correlation to how they're hedging their production and of course looking more long term at valuation. But where do Canadian energy producers need to see oil in order to be profitable? If you can really debate through the the two approaches and, and the risk that you see uh, between commodity based and equity based. Thanks. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I think uh, you can definitely see the risk of, in, of investing in futures if you just look at a three-day price chart of, of that near-month contract, you know, where oil started the day on Monday at about 20 bucks and finished the day at minus 35 bucks. Commodities can be an interesting way to invest. They do have the potential to diversify, but they carry with it, you know, a lot of uh, extra risk. You know, most commodity ETFs 
actually not structured as 81102 standard mutual funds like most ETFs are. They're, they're commodity pools. And if you read the prospectus, you'll note that there's there's inherent risk there. You know, so there's a couple of things that have been happening in the market with those ETFs. They've been closed for subscriptions. So USO being kind of the most notable one trading in the US was closed from subscriptions. So even though it was down, you know, significantly yesterday, you know, about 25%, it was still trading at a 36% premium to NAV yesterday. So I think retail investors have to be very, very careful. Um, some of them, I, I think, are not being careful, you know, in terms of it looks like it's good value because it's down, but it's still trading at a significant premium to NAV. Uh, the contango, like you mentioned, is also a significant risk for future space strategies. And what the, you know, contango means is forward prices are higher than spot prices. Or forward, you know, further out forward prices are are um, higher than nearer months future prices, and that's the situation right now. We have June trading at thirteen dollars, but you would have, you know, in August trading at about thirty five dollars, or sorry, twenty five dollars. You know, the futures based ETF is going to have to at some point sell that fifteen and buy the thirty five. So you want to buy low, sell high. You don't want to sell low, buy high, and so that's going to be an inherent problem. You know, equities, on the other hand, more of a, you know, equities, you know, also have a high risk in that, you know, equities face potentially, you know, significant losses of capital. You know, I think in this space with energies, you know, I think you're going to want to go senior versus junior, you know, just given these price challenges, you know, you, the question about where does oil need to be, it definitely needs to be a lot higher than $5 where it's selling in Edmonton right now. Last time oil was under $30, we started to see shut-ins of wells. And obviously, you know, like I said, we're well below that right now. So in terms of who's going to make it out of this, I think it's the seniors. And, uh, you know, I, I would I would say, you know, as a measure of prudence, if we're going to be in the energy space, and I, I think it can, you know, I think we can make arguments to be there. I would stick with the seniors for now that they're going to be the ones who are going to be able to restructure and navigate this. You know, unfortunately, I think we will see um, some junior oil companies not make it out of this potentially. You know, the recovery is going to take months and, you know, the stresses of, of energy at five or oil at $5 are, are super significant. So that's kind of kind of what I'm seeing on the, on the equity side. And uh, yeah, maybe Alfred will want to jump in on, on fixed income. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, uh, energy is definitely going to weigh in the fixed income space. With, you know, the difference between the fixed income market and the equity market, I would say, is that uh, the fixed income market, you know, most of the issuers in the energy space tend to be kind of larger cap companies and, and more diversified companies as well, uh, as opposed to the equity space, which tends to have a lot more kind of pure plays on energy and a lot of oil producers as well. So a lot of the corporate space uh, in the energy sector tends to be more pipelines, which tend to be a little bit less sensitive to oil prices, but nevertheless, they're going to be impacted by oil prices as well. Uh, when you look on the provincial side, you know, it's definitely going to have, you know, an impact on on provinces such as uh, Alberta. So, you know, oil prices are definitely going to have an impact there. So overall, you know, you know, some of the stories that we're hearing on the energy front is that, you know, the U.S. government may be looking to intervene uh, just because uh, they do have that strategic petroleum reserve. Uh, which holds about 800 million barrels of, of oil, uh, which is located in Louisiana. Uh, so President Trump right now is looking for authority to uh, basically use that petroleum reserve and, and taking off that excess supply off the market. So there's about 70 million of excess capacity that that fund could hold. 
So potentially, you know, the government could be intervening uh, with oil prices as well, just similar to you know, what they've been doing with, with the bond markets. So that's been pretty interesting. And I, maybe I'll just jump in with one last follow up on the point about seniors. Um, you know, I think our ZEO is actually, a, you know, it's a good exposure to to get that senior exposure. So all these companies are, are in the ZEO. There's nine holdings, equally weighted oil and gas. They're all in the uh, TSX 60. So they're, they're really the large cap. And they also have that pipeline mix that, that Alfred spoke about. And I think, you know, balancing out pipelines with uh, seniors and integrated seniors is, is a prudent way to approach the market. I mean, obviously, junior oil is going to be a, a leveraged play, um, but that's going to carry significant risk with it. I think I think the seniors that EO is a, is a prudent play. And we're starting to see, you know, in the U.S., we're starting to see some flows into energy. It could be interesting from that value perspective. All right. Thanks to both of you for, for those comments. Yeah, I do really think it's going to be an interesting time for the commodity-based ETFs because we are going to face the challenge of the contango of the of the pricing decay of the near contracts, just like we've seen in May, we're seeing in June. And until demand comes back, that's going to be something that the market's going to have to deal with. So large cap energy producing equity seems to be uh, a much more prudent way to approach that right now. So let's change topics now and, and speak about the Bank of Canada, where in the past week they've come out with an extension of their bond buying program now into provincial bonds. While this certainly isn't as far as, as what we've seen the Fed do, we do seem to be going down a similar, although more more conservative path. What does this mean, uh, Alfred, within the liquidity and for liquidity in the fixed income market? And do you see this eventually getting the to corporate bonds? So tie that in. Do you see this as a as a credit opportunity or uh, concerned about the market, should we really be looking to stick more to the federal uh, federal bonds at the risk of the hope rally potentially fading? Thank you. Sure. So, um, you know, that bond buying program obviously is going to improve uh, liquidity or the aim is going to improve uh, liquidity in the provincial states. So right now, you know, part of the issue is that uh, if you look at a lot of the dealers, uh, they have a lot of inventory sitting on their balance sheet right now, which is preventing them from providing liquidity. So a big part of the focus potentially is, you know, focusing on a lot of the less liquid issues that a lot of the dealers are sitting on. So, you know, think about the things that uh, a lot of the provincial bonds that have a high coupon or tend to be, you know, older off the run issues. So the intent of the bond buying program is essentially going to, you know, focus on a lot of these more stale issues and removing the, that stale inventory uh, from the dealer balance sheet. So that's going to be you know, positive in terms of allowing the dealers to provide liquidity again, meaning you know, tighter, tighter bid offer spreads, better functioning markets in the provincial space as well. So this should be a positive, uh, not directly for ETFs, but more directly for the underlying markets, uh, which should obviously flow through to the ETFs as well. In terms of the corporate bond buying program, uh, the Bank of Canada did announce that they're going to do a corporate bond buying program as well. So that the aim of that is going to be similar way as, as how the provincial bond buying program is going to work. It's essentially going to remove a lot of the scale inventory from the dealer balance sheet, which is you know, the aim of that is to uh, restore liquidity. So in terms of you know whether um, you know you should be in credit or federals right now. The way I would look at it is that there's a short-term trade and there's a long-term trade. So the long-term trade, I think, if you're looking at anything that's credit-related right now, credit spreads usually don't widen out to this degree. 
uh, until the end of the cycle, which is you know where we are right now. So this buying opportunity, in my from my point of view, you know happens you know once every decade when you know, when we come to the end of the credit cycle, which is what we're seeing right now. So I think if you're looking you know two to three years out, credit is the way to go. It's probably going to outperform if you're looking long term. However, you know with caveat knowing that. There's going to be speed bumps over the next two years. There's going to be downgrades. There's going to be defaults, especially in the high yield space. So just having knowing that there's short-term risk, you know, corporate is the way to go. However, if you're thinking more short-term and thinking about managing risk in your in your fixed income portfolio and you know, the potential hiccups that may come over the next two years, then federal is the way to go to manage risk. But overall, I'd say, you know, if you're looking for performance, credit is the way to go as long as you know about those speed bumps along the way. All right. Thank you for that, Alfred. Uh, certainly helps to keep that long-term view, but always challenging uh, dealing with clients in the short term. Um, now, we've, we've talked about energy as a sector, which, of course, has felt the pain uh, through the correction. Let's, let's switch gears and talk about a couple of sectors that might come out ahead. So a sector idea for this market, of course, would be healthcare, and that there's the race for the cure going on. But beyond that, are there other areas where an increased focus and spend on healthcare uh, will push this sector forward and make it a nice uh, satellite option for portfolios? I'll turn that back to Alfred. Thanks. Sure. So um, I think there's two ways to play it. Um, you know, as you mentioned, there's a pure play uh, in terms of healthcare. So healthcare is definitely going to benefit in this kind of environment where, you know, as you mentioned, there's a race towards finding a vaccine. So companies like Merck, uh, Johnson & Johnson are, are definitely going to to, to benefit from this. Uh, there's also a race towards finding treatments as well, which would be beneficial for companies like Eli Lilly, uh, Amgen. Uh, but also you would figure that, you know, after all this, there's going to be a lot more focus in terms of, you know, healthcare spending, uh, which is going to benefit the entire sector. So all the companies within, you know, ZUH, which is our equal weight U.S. healthcare ETF. Um, even when you look at companies like Stryker, which makes, you know, medical products and equipment, should be favorable and, and, you know, companies like Medtronics, which, which focuses on providing products for heart related problems, uh, which, you know, compromised immune systems has been a big part of the COVID-19 story as well. But the other way I would play this is, you know, it's not so much a pure play on, on, uh, healthcare, but if you look at, you know, certain, certain factors like quality, there's about a 20% focus on healthcare. So there's, you know, there's, there's, Companies held within ZUQ, for example, which is our U.S. quality ETF that focuses on, you know, names like Merck, Eli Lilly, Amgen, Johnson & Johnson. Why I like quality right now is because you know, the big problem with, you know, when you look at the market right now is when you look at traditional measures of valuation, so things like P.E. ratios, if there's no telling P.E. ratios don't work in this market because no one knows where the Ford earnings are right now. So even when you talk to... Um, there's a lot of reports on, you know, CEOs. They're not giving any full guidance on where earnings are. However, uh, in this kind of a market, I think you have to look at more tangible measures of balance sheet strength. So, you know, looking at things like debt to assets is a good way to look at, you know, how sound the company is. So when you look at the top 15 companies within ZUQ, all of them have a debt to asset ratio of about 30% or lower. So why that 30% is critical is because that tends to be you know the thumbnail measure on the street in terms of what's determined in terms of what determines uh, a strong balance sheet or not. And I think you know a strong balance sheet is going to be key over the next couple of months because you know we don't know how long this lockdown is going to last. 
Uh, so having that strong balance sheet is going to allow a company to you know, weather uh, the lockdown, whether it's going to be three months, four months, four months, or, or even five months. So um, again, I think ZUQ is a good way to play this. All right. Thanks, Alfred. Uh, and Chris, back to you. One other thought that we've, we've heard and gotten a couple of questions on in the past week is, is infrastructure. Now, of course, the short-term focus is on helping individuals and smaller businesses weather the shutdown. But once we start to get back to work, do you see further government spending, uh, perhaps focus on, on infrastructure? Do you, do you think we're going to be getting the shovels ready like we have done in the past out of, out of past uh, corrections and therefore stimulus? Your, your views on infrastructure, please. Thanks. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, infrastructure is one of the safest ways to play, you know, growth and stimulus going forward. You know, the demand profile of infrastructure is so strong. It's something we need globally, everywhere we need it in, in North America to maintain and to develop new infrastructures, you know, in emerging markets. There's a lot of uh, infrastructure that still needs to be built for the very first time. You know, every you know, it's it's one thing. You know, I've said it's 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 probably the best apolitical trade idea that we have is that you know, regardless of if you have you know Trump or Biden or any kind of government around the world, there's one thing that they all agree on. It would be you know infrastructures needed, and so I think we'll start seeing that play out. You know, some ways I'm not really looking forward to all the election you know talk and banter that they do, but certainly infrastructure promises will be a big part of it. You know, in terms of fiscal stimulus and, you know, when, when um, you know, so many people have lost their jobs, uh, certainly one way to stimulate back the economy, create jobs, is to, to launch infrastructure products. So, you know, not only does the demand profile look good, you know, if you're looking over 10, 20 years, the demand is there. But in particular, you know, kind of in this acute phase of, call it the coronavirus um, you know, pandemic problem that we have. You know, in this acute phase, I think it's even it's even more interesting. So, you know, we've always said, you know, they're they're great portfolio diversifier. They add a little, you know, the, the correlations to broad equity markets are a little bit lower, you know, than broad equity markets are to themselves. Gives you a little bit of a different, more of a um, a real asset, you know, kind of approach to investing. You know, can tend to hedge against inflation. You know, there's certainly a defensive exposure. You know, utilities are the largest chunk of ours, that GI infrastructure ETF. And, you know, you think about what's not kind of going to go away, you know, in this, as we work through this next one year to two year of, you know, volatility and, you know, we're going to be getting bad, bad news, unfortunately, with, with regards to, to some businesses, but, you know, utilities and regulated utilities, that's a pretty good place to be and generate income. There's also a pipeline exposure. You know, obviously energy is, is more risky and then that pipeline exposures are down, but they're 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 doing pretty well. And I think it's interesting on a go forward basis. And again, pipelines are a necessity to our lives, to our infrastructures and our economies. The the last thing in ZGI that I think is pretty interesting, unless we've talked about a lot, is is the REITs within uh, ZGI. Now I say REITs, but these aren't your typical you know, residential and retail REITs like a Rio Can or, or the, the type that you would find in, in ZRE. Uh, but these REITs are really focused all on uh, cell phone and wireless infrastructure. And if you look at the last kind of five years in ZGI, the, the percentage of exposure to these, these wireless infrastructure companies has gone from about 17% to it's about 29% today. The, the two largest would be American Power and Crown Castle. 
And again, this is cell phone towers. These are companies that are involved with the 5G transformation. They really stand to benefit off that trend. So again, there's going to be a lot of money spent on the 5G, obviously, as, as, um, as nations are brought up to that capability. So I think that's another really interesting sub-segment sub of the, the global infrastructure uh, ETF. I think you know all segments are positioned to take advantage of infrastructure spending. So I think it's a I think it's a great piece to have in your portfolio as kind of that satellite five, you know five ten percent of your equity allocations. I think it can I think it can uh, do a lot for 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 clients and um, yeah really benefit off the kind of macro trends that are going to happen over the next year and two years and also kind of decades. All right. Thank you, Chris. I mean, it's good to put out a couple of satellite ideas for people to think about following the trends in the marketplace. At this time, uh, just watching the clock, I'd like to check if there are any questions on the line. Hi, everyone. Uh, this is Saad Rana from Bimo Gam. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Good, thanks. Um, so thank you for all the insightful information there. It's uh, really great. My question is uh, both for Alfred and Chris. So I just wanted to know, uh, what are you seeing as far as uh, flows? And could you also provide maybe your insights? Uh, for sure. So, you know, we talked on the call. I'll, I'll start in um, and then, uh, you know, I'll, I'll start it off. Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we've really noticed there's been a lot of equity buying. You know, a lot of investors were underweight equities, and they've been rotating into that exposure. You know, that's still happening. Um, certainly low volatile equities. You know, I think investors are... Are, are more comfortable with lower risk exposure. So whether it's low ball, uh, whether that's quality, um, a little bit of beta as well, um, definitely lower risk exposures. I would say, you know, utilities have been, you know, an excellent performer. We've seen some flow there. Uh, we haven't really seen the flow yet on infrastructure, but, you know, it's, it's really consistent with that theme. So I think, you know, it, it's got the potential to capture flow, but I would say in general, um, you know, there's been equity flow kind of across the board and, you know, with a tilt towards uh, defensive exposures. You know, the other one that's been interesting and we, you know, we always, you know, consistently see flow is cover calls as well. You know, and we've talked about the backdrop of generating yield in this environment with the volatility, you know, where it is and it's still persistently, persistently elevated. It's a good opportunity to generate, you know, additional yield. Those products are yielding and to be, you know, kind of eight, nine plus percent um, that they've been compelling and, and advisors have been interested in adding those and uh, creating kind of an income buffer on a go forward. That's great. Thank you. I'll just check one more time. If you do have a question for Chris or Alfred, please press star six to unmute your line. Thank you. Hi there. Hi, please go ahead. Hi, Lamont here. Uh, thanks very much, Alfred, Chris, Mark, uh, and the entire BMO team for, for doing this call and setting up these series. It's uh, very informative and this type of volatile market that we're we're all experiencing. Um, I understand that this is a bit of an overarching question, and there may not be an all-encompassing answer, but I'm interested in uh, insight from all of you. Um, so I guess this question could be directed to any one of you. What, what is the case for ESG ETFs in this environment? Is there a case to be made for ESG ETFs in terms of you know downside capture, how they've performed lately in this period of volatility uh, across equity and fixed income, domestic and abroad. Okay, thanks. Yeah, ESG is a, a quite an interesting play right now. And quite frankly, in, until until the virus environment hit, it was probably the number one topic out there in the industry. So short
short term, we've moved away from that a little bit, but but in actuality, it's actually made the the argument a little bit stronger. So first of all, with with ESG, uh, there's a perception up out there that you give up performance, and that's certainly been proven not to be the case, uh, either risk adjusted or or in terms of absolute performance. That's the that's the first thing to get over. But when you think about what ESG brings to the table, two things I would think of: one short term and one longer term. The longer term is you tend to get a quality bias in the portfolio. So it's actually kind of interesting that ESG does line up with quality a fair bit. Uh, why does that happen? Uh, simply because of the G, uh, the governance. So there's a number of things that you'll look at within an ESG portfolio that will bias you towards quality companies, uh, companies that tend to have, uh, not that you're inherently looking for, but your, your result will be uh, things like lower leverage and, and lower risk uh, companies that are sort of operating on the edge. That will carry you through just like quality does over the long term. Over the shorter term, of course, the E comes into play where you typically have, uh, depending on the approach, a lot less energy exposure. So when we think of energy sort of being the, the canary here in terms of sectors as to uh, exposure to the to the cyclical nature and the, and the collapse of demand uh, just by having that lower, very very low even uh, energy exposure, you're seeing outperformance in those strategies right now, uh, and that stands out more in Canada than anywhere else simply because of the the higher energy weight of our, our market. So there's both a short and a long term play there, and I also think uh, you know with people taking uh, a look at the performance of the portfolios right now, maybe some gains coming off the, off the table. If they are looking to make some switches to, to sort of move towards the next generation of investing with less embedded gains getting in the way, it's, it's a great time to be looking at that. So lots, lots of reasons to think about ESG. I think we've just all been overwhelmed with the virus right now, but I, I think over the rest of the year, that's really going to come back strongly. Thanks. All right. Well, with that, I'm not uh, not hearing any other questions. So I'd like to thank everyone for joining us this morning. Uh, we appreciate your time. We appreciate your questions. Uh, thank you for listening to the conversation. Uh, thank you, of course, to Chris and Alfred uh, for providing your, your very valuable insights, uh, your speaking points, and as well some different trade uh, ideas or themes that, that we can look at within our portfolios. So with that, I'd like to thank everyone once again for joining the call. Have a great day. Stay safe. Thank you. Thank you to Mark Race, Chris Heeks, and Alfred Lee for joining us on the BMO ETFs podcast. Today, we dove deeper into exposures that can serve as satellite positions within your clients' portfolios, from a growth-oriented oil equities ETF to an ESG strategy that is inherently focused on quality returns. We also heard directly from your peers, advisors, who submitted questions to be answered by our experts. If you have questions you'd like addressed in future episodes, please contact Andrew Vachon, A-N-D-R-E-W dot V-A-C-H-O-N at BMO.com. Meanwhile, to learn more about ETF strategies mentioned in this episode, please contact your regional BMO ETF specialist. The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio manager represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice to any party. 
Investments should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives, and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statements that necessarily depend on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. Views from the Desk has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management.